0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, how good are you with silence? There's a couple different types of people in the world. There are some people who enjoy silence, and then there are people who have kids and never get any silence. There's there's some people who are comfortable with it and some people who are very, very uncomfortable with silence. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Sanctify Your Spotify. And, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at uh, different bands and different songs and using them kind of as a springboard for theological reflection, so we'll continue to do that this morning. A couple weeks left in the series, uh, beginning in Lent, we'll do a sermon series through the book of Jonah, and so we'll go uh, look through the book of Jonah together, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but I'm also looking forward to this morning. We are um, looking at a band called Twenty One Pilots this morning. You familiar with Twenty One Pilots? Yeah, a few of us are familiar with Twenty One Pilots. They blew up a few years ago, and so they're they're a pretty popular band. Maybe one of the most popular out of the ones we'll look at during the series. Um, It's just two people, if you're not familiar with them. It's a little musical duo from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Just one guy who uh, sings and plays the piano, sometimes the bass or ukulele, and then another guy who drums. And they, again, like I said, kind of blew up on the scene a few years ago. Uh, Now, it's very hard to kind of categorize the genre that they uh, make music in. Um, it breaks apart a lot of different molds. Their manager calls their, uh, their music pop rock piano rap. And so it's a, it's a mouthful, but it, you'll see kind of in the song even this morning, it is kind of hard to kind of pigeonhole them. Um, in 2015, they had an album that um, kind of went very big. And actually, it's the first album in history where every track on the album has been certified gold um, by the recording industry of America, and uh, they continue to be the only band in history um, that's ever had an alternative artist two top ten songs at the same time. And so they've gone big in our culture by any like commercial measure. Um, they're a very popular band. And what's interesting to me about the two of them is uh, they're both Christians, although they're not a Christian band and they don't make explicitly Christian music, but it's not hard to look at most of their songs and kind of see some Faith theme or some scriptural kind of theme in their songs, uh, and so the, the the just the two guys have always been very interesting to me, and I enjoy their music. and And so today we're going to look at a song called uh, "Car Radio." Uh, it's a popular song by them. Um, they actually made it before they were big, and then re released it after they were getting a lot of attention and selling out arenas and things of that nature. Uh, and so you have the the lyrics with you if you want to follow along. It's double sided, so you can kind of tell like. It's not an eight-minute song. They get the words in here. Uh, So without further ado, here is the music video for Car Radio by 21 Pilots. As a college student and forgot to lock his car, and when he came back after getting out of class, found that someone had broken into the car and had stolen his car radio. And so he drove around in silence for a few months as a broke college kid, couldn't replace it, and it's a a song about the... the experience of having to sit in silence and the uncomfortableness of sometimes sitting in silence and confronting what is within you. I love the, the lyric that goes like this, sometimes quiet is violent. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Uh, perhaps like even in a relationship, you get the silent treatment from somebody and, and that itself can be a violent way of communicating or, or you, you're forced to sit in this silence and, and you encounter things that are uncomfortable or painful. He says, there's, there's no hiding for me. I'm forced to deal with what I feel. There's no distraction to mask what is real. This is the case, I think, for many of us. If we're kind of forced to go into a moment of silence, if we were to, to lose our, our ear pods for the day, or the, the internet goes out, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a, a situation like that. You're bunking down at home, there's a thunderstorm, and then the internet goes out, and you're like, oh no, I have not downloaded any shows or music. I stream everything. And the boredom comes quick, and it comes fast. This just a ponder of something terrifying, but this time there's no sound to hide behind. It's a song about a story, and he puts it in poetry to try to tease out the deeper meanings. That's what human beings often do to try to explore the experiences that they have. And he highlights what is, I think, a fairly common experience, which is an uncomfortableness with silence and, and what can happen when we encounter that silence, the kind of thoughts that might appear, the emotions we might have to process the things that we've been running from that now we are forced to confront. And so he says, I sit in silence. And the paradox of him communicating about silence while singing a song, I think, is an interesting one. And and even towards the end of the song, he's just screaming, right, a couple of times, I sit in silence, now I just sit in silence. Now, the Christian tradition, for, for a very long time, has seen silence as something that could be an opportunity, as something that could be used as a source of strength, a source of spiritual maturity. And I want to tease that tradition out with you this morning. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is where we'll start this morning. Jesus himself models for us a very interesting relationship with silence, with solitude. And he he provides kind of the path forward, an example for his followers of how you and I might experience the silence in a way where we might even seek it out. We might pursue it in hopes of being better formed and and more equipped to hear from the Lord and to follow his will for our lives. Matthew 3 is where we'll begin. We'll pick it up in verse 13, and we'll read into chapter 4. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the baptism narrative of Jesus, this kind of spiritual mountaintop experience. Jesus is baptized, the heavens are are tore open, the Gospel of Mark says, they're ripped open, and and the Spirit descends on Christ. He gets this verbal affirmation of his identity and his vocation. And then immediately after that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report this next story as well. Then Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Against the stone, Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord to your test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, this is a very interesting story, and it's a very interesting progression, um, order of events in Jesus' life. He kind of comes out onto the scene with this baptism, and this is a very dramatic and profound moment. And then after this temptation story, after this temptation experience, Jesus begins his ministry, again in, in power and authority, healing, sicknesses casting out demons. But first, sandwiched in between, he goes to a place called the wilderness. In Greek, this is the word "eremos," and it can be translated in different ways, even in the Gospel of Matthew, but, but you might see it as a, a desolate place, a quiet place, a lonesome place, the wilderness. And, and one might be expected to ask, why does this happen to Jesus? Why does this happen to Jesus here at this point in his life and ministry? Why, right after the baptism, does Jesus go out to the wilderness and face this battle with the Satan, the devil? And then, why are we told that it's the Spirit who leads him up to the wilderness? It's the Spirit, he's the one who takes him to the wilderness. For years, I read the story and I was a little confused because I wondered why the Spirit of God would set Jesus up to go toe-to-toe, in a sense, with Satan, and Satan's, I mean, this is a battle of quotations. Uh, this passage, I think, proves to us, just because you can quote the Bible doesn't mean necessarily you're on the right side, or you're using it in a correct, fruitful, faithful way. But why after 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, why, Why? It, for most of us, right, if we go this long in isolation and fasting, this is not the time that we want to have to face this big temptation. It's not the time we want to have to battle our demons, but But for Jesus, he's set up by the Holy Spirit specifically for this encounter, by this time in the wilderness of prayer and of fasting. I think it's the case that for Jesus, the wilderness is a place of strength and not weakness. And this is perhaps where I've gotten confused as I've read the story for so long. As I've read this, I've thought, why would God intentionally put him in in a vulnerable place to have to encounter this experience. But what if it's the case that it's actually this time in the wilderness, it's 40 days and 40 nights of being alone with God the Father that fully prepares him for the temptation, where he's able to build up the strength and get the focus he needs to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. Jesus, right after his baptism, begins a relationship with the wilderness, or Ramos. And it's a relationship that he's going to cultivate through the rest of his life. So all of the Gospels will point this out to us multiple times, that Jesus, on many occasions, retreats. He seeks out. He goes to the wilderness or the desolate place or the, the quiet place. And there's this pattern that seems to emerge in the Gospels, even in Mark's Gospel, which, which is infamous for the, the word immediately. It just says immediately Jesus did this, immediately Jesus did that, immediately Jesus did this. It's kind of a breathless Gospel. It's full of action. It's fast-paced. And even Mark goes out of his way to let us know Jesus repeatedly, with a, a pattern, a routine. He had a rhythm of seeking out this quiet place, this desolate place, of, of pursuing silence. And it happens before almost any big decision that Jesus makes, before he chooses the twelve disciples, he he retreats, spends time alone. It happens before after important events in his life, after he feeds the five thousand. Jesus retreats and goes on his own. Jesus retreats before he's arrested, betrayed, and crucified, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus cultivates a relationship with the wilderness. I think that highlights this point that Jesus saw it not as a place of weakness, but as a place of strength. It was a place where he could go to more fully connect with God the Father, to more fully be equipped and prepared and ready to engage with whatever decision was coming up or whatever experience or situation he was about to have to go through that would take place the relationship begins that Jesus leans on for the rest of his life for he he seeks out silence and solitude flip with me to mark chapter 6 in mark 6 we see Jesus extend this practice to his followers Mark 6, we'll pick it up in verse 30. Now, the disciples have been sent out right before this by Jesus, and they've been partnering in Jesus' ministry. They've been healing people, casting out demons. They've, I mean, they've been operating a lot of power and authority. They come back, verse 30, the, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Aramos, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest awhile. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Here Jesus extends the invitation to walk in this pattern to his followers. After this time of ministry, after this very successful experience of partnering with Christ and his mission, he says, Go away, get get by yourself. Go find this desolate place that I'm familiar with. And there rest and recharge and rejuvenate. And Christians throughout history have taken this invitation to his apostles to extend to all of his followers. And so throughout Christian tradition, there's been a spiritual discipline that has been cultivated by Christians throughout history. And it's the discipline of silence and solitude. There's been this wisdom in the Christian tradition history that says in moments of silence and places of solitude we encounter a chance for the Holy Spirit to form us and to shape us and to mature us in important and foundational and profound ways. How comfortable are you with silence? How often do you seek out solitude? Have you found like Jesus that this is a place and a time of strength and formation and the spirit's activity in your life, there are a lot of reasons to dislike silence and solitude, a lot of reasons to be afraid of times of silence and solitude. I think all of us naturally have a fear of of being lonely or of being isolated. again, there's a, a lot of wisdom in the Christian tradition a, about this that would tell us that that solitude, at least the type Christians. Pursue is not the same as loneliness or isolation. Richard Foster says this, he says, Loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his books, he'll say, if you don't have a good community, you probably shouldn't go off by yourself. You need a deep community to thrive in solitude. And if you don't have solitude, you're probably not going to thrive in community. These kind of balance one another out. Being being lonely is not the opposite of solitude. It's just inner emptiness where solitude is fulfillment. The same with isolation. Wayne Cordero says this. There's a difference between isolation and solitude. They may uh, contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they're worlds apart. Watch what he says here. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul, and isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Solitude. There's a chosen separation for refining your soul, and isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. I'm an introvert, and so I, I'm not too uncomfortable with the silence, with solitude. But I do have to wonder in my own life how often the, the desire for isolation is really born out of a lack of solitude. Is because I've neglected this kind of intentional time alone with myself and with God. This is, what, this is what this practice is about, this spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. It's about carving out and seeking and pursuing intentional time for you to be quiet and be by yourself, with yourself, and with God. Now, there's... A lot of challenges to this to this practice there's always been as long as human beings have been it's been difficult to get away it's been difficult to quiet the noise around you or the noise inside you but we perhaps face uh, particular unique challenges as we live in the digital age we live in a time where um, as some economists call it we it's like an economy of attention um, everything is competing for our attention. And, and the way that technology has advanced and developed, it's done so in a way that, that makes it harder for us to pay attention, or as another researcher said, makes it kind of to where we're, our new normal is continual partial attention. So we're partially paying attention to multiple things at all times. It's very hard to be in the moment with ourselves or with God or with somebody else or with a book because we're also partially attentive to that new push notification on the phone or to our email or to something that's happening over there in the corner of the room. People compete over our attention, over our focus. And we find ourselves in a digital era just bombarded with noise. And this, I think, is a hindrance, is an obstacle for you and I in our Christian life, in our Christian development. There are some people who have come out of the tech world who are now arguing that there needs to be, that something needs to be developed for data scientists, technology engineers, like something akin to the medical Hippocratic Oath, like an, an oath to do no harm. Because people who have been behind the scenes here, they, they come back and they say, look, they're, they're engineering technology specifically based on very hard science about how your brain works and operates. And and I mean, they're very specifically seeking out addiction, attention. When you, you get that update on that social media app, and it scrolls a little different way now, and there's a different way that things are notified for you, this is because a team of people have spent months, if not years, going over what's the most effective way to get your attention, to make you stay on longer, to make you think about this more. And look, I love, I love social media. I'm not a Luddite, I'm not uh, anti-technology or anything like that, but I am aware of the way it changes the world we live in, the way it changes how we think, the way it changes our capacity to interact with silence, to enter into solitude. And in a world with lots of noise and lots of distractions, for you and I, if if we ask the question of where might we go, where might we need to go in order to continue to mature spiritually, in order to continue to to experience intimacy with, with God, Christian tradition would say, don't neglect solitude, don't neglect silence. These intentional times of being alone with God and with yourself. Now one of the things that happens is what the song describes. Just when we get by ourselves, or we get in a moment or place of silence, we're confronted with ourselves. And often we we don't seem to like silence because we understand that we're running away from something. There are things that pop up in our mind that we'd otherwise not rather think about, or emotions that are painful or uncomfortable that we don't know quite how to process or integrate into our life. There's a a, a big resurgence in psychology, psychiatry, just the sciences in general for meditation and mindfulness, which are but another name for what the Christian tradition is pointing towards when they talk about solitude and silence. And mindfulness, one of the, the most important Things that, that you learn is that it's the this, this skill of kind of observing your own thoughts, of realizing that you're not the same as your thoughts, right? A thought can come into your mind and you're not trapped to it. Your fate's not tied to it. Destiny does not link you with this thought. You can step back and analyze the thought. You can talk back to yourself. You can become curious. An emotion comes into your heart and, and you can realize this emotion is fleeting. This emotion is not the same thing as me. This emotion may or may not be true it may or may not be helpful. In therapy, my own life, one of the things that I've learned is to let thoughts and emotions, instead of letting them control my life, allow them to make me curious. Why am I thinking this? Why does this make me feel that way? And then from there, you start to Unravel some things that might be of importance for you, for your relationship with God, for your ability to act faithfully in the world. In silence and solitude, we're able to process and integrate the parts of our life that, that we can very effectively keep compartmentalized and that perhaps make us unhealthy human beings. But it can be scary and it can be uncomfortable and it can be painful I think all of us could probably answer this question. What if, I mean, if I gave you like 10 minutes of silence just right now, don't start sweating, I'm not going to do it. What would be that thing that comes into your mind that you'd rather not think about? You'd rather not talk about? So we we use noise, we use technology, and sometimes they're used just as a way to distract or to numb or to self-medicate. Now, there are dangers with this. One of the dangers is that without time intentionally spent by ourselves, with ourselves, and with God, it's hard to cultivate a very deep relationship with God. Silence and solitude, they seem kind of basic building blocks for intimacy with the Father. It's hard to really develop much spirituality without this time of reflection and processing. One of the things that happens to us when we practice this discipline is we're able to experience more intimacy with God. We're able to experience his love for us in a deeper, more profound, more transformative way. We're able to to think about the people in our lives and the situations in our lives and the things that we feel called to do in such a way that we're better equipped, more focused, better able to be able to go meet those needs, fulfill those opportunities. But if we don't take time to take time, we, we miss out on this. One of the things that happens is it can get really hard for us to discern between voices. Like, what's what's the difference between God's voice and my own voice? What's the difference between my own voice and my father's voice? Or my friend's voices? This is a very difficult task that's fundamental to, to all of us. I mean, we've all got to try to undertake this at some point or another. One of the benefits of silence and solitude of of Practiced regular time with this discipline is that we become better at distinguishing voices. We become better at saying, this sounds more like God's voice than my voice. Or this sounds more like my voice than God's voice. Or this sounds more like my father's voice than either of our voices. You see, in moments of silence, if I'm prompted to show forgiveness or love towards someone I am not inclined to love or show forgiveness to, I can, I can pretty much guarantee that it's probably God's voice. Right? I'm not producing that naturally on my own. In fact, this kind of resistance, at least initial resistance to it, is almost a hallmark sign that perhaps this is the Holy Spirit. And often when I'm critical or judgmental or arrogant or prideful, this is, this is my voice speaking. Perhaps trying to disguise itself as God's voice. I mean, we, we learn in the scriptures that the enemy, Satan, the devil, is he, the accuser, and the spirit is the comforter or the advocate. One of the things that the spiritually mature learn is that if the, vo- if the voice is, is bringing accusations and shame, if it's tearing down and taking life, this is not the voice of the Father, it's not the voice of the Spirit. But if the voice is advocating, if it's bringing comfort, if it's building up and leading to life, if it's developing fruitfulness, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, and in solitude and silence, we start to discern them. And it's difficult, and we make mistakes. This is perhaps one of the reasons we need a good community to practice a good solitude. So we, we need to come back to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, this is what I've heard, this is what I think, this is what I'm going through and thinking about we often, I think, misdiagnose the most pressing issues of our time or what it is that non-Christians even think are the most pressing issues around them or what might be more attractive to them or or bear better witness of the good news of Jesus. There's an author who who says this. This modernity, this kind of philosophical worldview that, that we've gone through as humans and are still kind of struggling with, modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and by accident In favor of commerce. We've talked about this quite a bit. It's easy to exchange spirituality with consumerism. The reason he says we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, Perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. What if that's true? What if if the greatest danger to faith right now is not hedonism, it's not just necessarily doing whatever we want and partaking in whatever pleasurable thing is in front of us, but it's, it's distraction. I think this is true of many of our experiences, even in a a worship setting or at a weekend retreat that we would go to or a daily devotional we do in the morning, that that often we, we might come across something that seems profound to us. We might be pricked and prompted to change something in our life, to make a decision, to have a certain conversation. And then if we're not careful before we know it, something else happens. We get that ping and the email appears. That song comes on and we start singing along. The kid yells mom six times, and you've got to address that situation. And before you know it, it's gone. You've distracted yourself out of any spiritual growth. I mean, you've, you've allowed yourself to become distracted out of any real meaningful spiritual progress. This is why we've got to be intentional about it. We can't just expect it to happen without our own planning, without our own desires. Jesus, he cultivated this relationship with the wilderness. He invited his disciples into this relationship. I think you and I today still receive that invitation. Are you comfortable with the silence? Do you have a routine in your life? Do you have a pattern in your life of making time to be alone? For there to be quiet? For you to just be there with yourself and with God? If you don't, what, what are the things keeping you from that? Or if you've tried it and failed, what, what happened there? Become curious about that. Or maybe you do, but, but what's the next step for you? What's the, what's the place to go after that? I think all of us can have an answer to this question. One of the things I think that we do wrong in Christianity sometimes is we, we try to make a prescription for Christian living that fits like one size fits all for everybody. And just most things don't work that way in life. What works for silence and solitude for me is not necessarily going to work for you. I mean, if you're in middle school, this is going to look different than if you're retired. If you're a young mother with infants, it's going to look way different than you for you than, than than someone else in a different situation in life. There are different situations in life. There are different seasons. Even in those situations, there are different stages we're at in Christian maturity. A brand new Christian is is going to experience this differently, is going to be helped by different things than someone who's been following Christ for 20, 30, 40 50 years. Both of them, though, I think are going to find benefit by practicing this discipline. They'll be able to have their car radio stolen and not have this kind of negative experience. To be comfortable with the silence means that you're comfortable with yourself. You're comfortable with God. And this is, I think, at the end, the goal of our faith to be united with the Father the way that Christ is united with the Father. A person who has this developed sense of solitude and silence, who has this routine practice of of going to the wilderness or the quiet place like Jesus and his disciples, is a is a person who experiences God's love in profound ways that, that affect them on a pretty regular basis. It's a person who has peace about their situation even when it seems like there's no reason to be peaceful about it. It's a person who can be confident and hopeful in the face of negative circumstances, it's a person who, who's really reflected on their relationships and the decisions that might be in front of them, who, who perhaps goes to meet them with energy that they otherwise wouldn't have, with a focus they otherwise wouldn't have, with an eagerness that can only be attained from the Holy Spirit by joining Christ on his mission, by understanding our lives in the context of a larger story, a more cosmic tale that understands our daily routines and obligations, not just as one drop of sand on the beach and otherwise meaningless life, but instead as a vital part of God's grand act of redemption. And so I invite you this morning to to evaluate yourself. Ask the question, what, what is your routine? Is there one? If there's not, even if there is, what's the next step for you? What ways can you carve out naturally occurring moments of solitude? That The few moments when you wake up, or the few moments before you go to bed, or in the car. What, what areas, what crevices are already there in your life? There, uh, I think most of us, if we sat down and thought through it, we kind of already have some places where we could really set up a, a, a way to, and a time to be intentional about this. It's in the the silence and solitude that we experience God. It's when we are able to process who we are, our emotions, and our thoughts. It's when our will is able to be aligned with God's will, like you see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a time when we're able to be prepared and equipped to go face the, the world, the responsibilities, the obligations, the opportunities that we have around us. And so I encourage you this morning to seek out the silence. intentional about sitting in it, to desire to be led by the Spirit to the wilderness. Not so that you can become weak and vulnerable, but just the opposite, that you might be formed and strengthened and prepared to meet whatever temptation or battle is coming your way.